Chapter Four of Bird's Eye Views of Far Lands. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Eva Easton. Bird's Eye Views of Far Lands by James T. Nichols. Chapter Four. THE TRANSFORMATION OF A NATION, KOREA The Palestine of Eastern Asia is Korea. While called the land of the morning calm, it has been the battleground of the Eastern world for centuries. Japan, on the east, has looked upon Korea as a sword pointed at her heart. China, on the south, has always felt that Korea practically belonged to her while the great bear on the north has looked longingly for ages toward this coveted land. The same can be said of Manchuria as well. Until recent years the world knew but little of this country. It was really a hermit nation. The people lived in walled cities and allowed no outside people to come in. Less than a half century ago signboards could be seen along the highways upon which was written, quote, If you meet a foreigner, kill him. He who has friendly relations with him is a traitor to his country. End quote. It is said that they actually kept the country along the seashore barren and unattractive, while in the interior the people lived on the fat of the land. The mountain peaks were great beacon towers lighted up every night to signal to the capital that no danger threatened, and all was well along the borders. In area, Korea is about as large as Minnesota. The population is more than 15 millions. Except in the northern part, which is as cold as Minnesota, the climate is delightful. Nearly everything that will grow in Japan will grow in Korea. The surface is largely mountains and plains. In the mines are gold, copper, iron, and coal, as well as other minerals. The silk industry is becoming one of great value, and although every mountain forest has been cleared, some paper is made. Perhaps in no other country in the world has such an effort been made to keep men and women apart as in this strange land. In Seoul, the capital city, they used to toll a bell, at eight in the evening, which meant that men must go indoors and let women on the streets. Blind men, officials, and certain others were exempt. Any man with a doctor's prescription was allowed on the streets, but so many of these were forged that much trouble resulted. At midnight the bell tolled again, and after that hour men could circulate on the streets freely, without danger of arrest. The people in Korea nearly all dress in white, no matter what their work may be. Men and women dress much alike. A curious custom among married women is the wearing of waists that expose the entire naked breasts. This is all but beautiful, and as someone says, gives the appearance of a shocking show-window. The theory is, so they say, that to cover the breasts 
is to poison the milk. No man really amounts to much in Korea until after he is married, but that is largely true in our country. There, however, silence is the wife's first duty. Marriage customs are much like those in Japan, where parents make the matches. It is said that often the husband never hears the voice of his wife until after marriage, and even then she keeps silent for as long as a month. The Korean people have some happy times together, in spite of some of these strange customs. One of their national festival days is called Swing Day. Swings are prepared nearly everywhere, and people drop their work and swing. The Koreans are different from any other people in the Far East, and when they play, they play with all their might. Men and boys love to hunt the swimming holes along the streams, and they seem to enjoy this sport as do our own men and boys in America. While Korea has been a battleground for ages, yet it was opened up to modern civilization by Japan. Something like America, through Commodore Perry, opened up Japan. Later on, Korea paid tribute to China. The great crisis came in 1894, when the battle royal was waged between Japan and China for this land. On September 15th of that year, a great battle occurred on land, and two days later, in the mouth of the Yala River, occurred what is said to be the first great naval battle of history, in which modern warships were used. In this battle the Chinese fleet went to the bottom of the sea, and soon Port Arthur was besieged and taken, and the Japanese army started across the country with the cry, On to Peking! This opened the eyes of the Chinese, and Korea was surrendered, and was practically annexed by Japan, and its name changed to Chosen. Since that time Korean civilization has gone forward by leaps and bounds, and is fast becoming a country that has to be reckoned with. The story of Japan's dealings with Korea during these years contains some mighty dark spots. These things have aroused the indignation of the whole civilized world, and the end is not yet. To plant the seed of Christianity on Korean soil has required a great effort, and the story of the transformation of this nation that has occurred within the past forty years is as thrilling as can be found in the history of modern missions. It was the pleasure of the writer to travel to the Far East with one who has been on the field in Korea for twenty-five years. Thirteen of these years were spent in the city of Pyongyang, which became the scene of one of the greatest revivals in all the history of the Christian Church. At the time that Mr. and Mrs. Swallen, who were sent as missionaries by the Presbyterian Church, Mrs. Swallen was my traveling companion, to Pyongyang, it was said to be the most wicked city in Korea. So frightful were the conditions that boys in their play would often drag the corpse of a person who had died during the night through the streets the next day, unmolested. It is almost impossible to believe the story of things that occurred almost daily in this city. 
The first building of the mission was but eight feet square, not much larger than a store box. As at that time men and women were always separate in public gatherings, the men met at one hour and the women at another. Soon the building was doubled in size. When the Swallans took charge, the mission was called the Central Church. Then came the great revival wave, and the church grew to a great congregation. A new building seating between five and six hundred was erected, and before it was finished it was too small. About one hundred members then withdrew to form another congregation in another part of the city. A little later another hundred started still another congregation. As the central church building was even yet far too small, they erected a great building that will seat two thousand. The interest was so great that other congregations had to be formed, and at the time Mrs. Swallen told me this wonderful story, out from this little store-box mission, seven great congregations had been formed in different parts of the city. Besides this, the movement spread to the country, and nearly thirty congregations had grown from this central mission. Then came the great revival of 1910, which attracted so much attention. These people started the cry, quote, A million converts in one year, end quote. The work was systematized. Bible classes were formed, and every Christian became a real missionary. Volunteers were called for, who could give one or more days to the work. Nearly everyone volunteered, and during the first three months it was estimated that seventy-five thousand days of personal work was promised. Great earnestness and enthusiasm were manifest everywhere. The pastor of this central church and one of his elders formed the habit of going to the church every morning at dawn for prayer. This soon became known, and others wished to join them. One Sunday morning the pastor announced that all who wished to do so might join them the following morning, and the bell would be rung at 4.30. At 1 a.m. the people began gathering, and at two o'clock more than one hundred were present. For four mornings these meetings were kept up, and between six and seven hundred were present each morning. On the fourth morning the pastor asked how many would give one or more days of service, and every hand went up, more than three thousand days' work being promised. The secret of this mighty revival seems to have been caused by the study of the Bible and prayer. Everyone carried a New Testament. Bible training classes were formed, and sometimes two thousand men actually gathered to study the Bible. In the churches in Korea, even yet, men and women sit apart from each other. A petition divides the building, but both men and women can see the minister. Men keep their hats on in church, but all, both men and women, take off their shoes before entering. To see these shoes or clogs is quite a sight. They are placed in racks made for that purpose, each having their own particular place in the rack. 
As might be expected, trouble over shoes is not unheard of. Some of the women who were not over-scrupulous sometimes take the best pair of shoes. In fact, this custom became so universal that the women were taught to make and carry with them to church a small muslin bag. On reaching the church, the women now take off their shoes, place them in the bag, and take them into the building with them. All, both men and women, sit on the floor. In some of the churches now, small mats are piled high at the door, and each takes one of these to sit on. One remarkable feature of these Korean churches is that each church is self-supporting from the beginning. Instead of leaning upon others, they are taught to depend upon themselves. The World's Sunday School Convention was recently held in Tokyo. A significant thing about the invitation cabled to this country for this convention was the fact that it was signed by Japan's leading captain of industry and the mayor of Tokyo as well. A businessman's Sunday school party had toured both Japan and Korea before this, however. In almost every one of the forty cities visited, this party was met by governors, mayors, chambers of commerce, boards of education, railroad officials, as well as Christian workers, and the friendly attitude of Japan toward America was manifest in every possible way. At the very time, too, when the California legislature was stirring up so much trouble between the two nations. But the greatest demonstration of all on this entire trip was that made in Seoul, Korea. The day was perfect. The great throng marched to the parade grounds, a Sunday school banner leading the way. Only members of Sunday schools and officials were admitted, and 14,700 Sunday school workers, by actual count, went into the grounds. It is said that the Japanese officials, who for the first time witnessed an array of the Sunday school forces of Seoul, looked troubled. It was in the month of May, and the bushes of the old palace yard were a bloom in white and red. As the great multitude sang the Christian hymns in the Korean language, the very buildings almost trembled. End of chapter 4 Recording by Eva Easton Slotesburg, New York, July 2011 Bird's Eye Views of Far Lands by James T. Nichols Chapter 4